the middle chunk of chapter one. So Josh started us off last week with the beginning, setting the scene, setting the context, and then also uh, looked a little bit at the very last words as well, kind of seeing some of the hope that's coming on. The story starts off in a very dark place, but there's hope in the chapter uh, that we saw last week. And uh, this week I want to focus in on the relationship between uh, the two women of the story, Naomi and Ruth. Uh, but before we do, um, I want to talk a bit about bananas. Fair play. Obvious. I know you're all thinking. Bananas. I think bananas are particularly underrated. I think bananas are one of the best fruits, and I'm willing to fight anyone on this. Um, they're tasty. Filled... Natalie, thank you. Filled with vitamins, fiber as well, all sorts of nutrients, things that you need. Uh, but they come handily packaged in their own protective wrapper that's biodegradable. It's, they're good for the environment. It's fantastic. Now, imagine with me a little thought experiment that you, uh, it's mid-morning, perhaps you've been on a hike, you've been on a walk and you feel it, you start to feel hungry and you know it's a while before your next full solid meal. And your friend who's with you says, would you like a banana? You're thinking, yes, I would love a banana. Uh, I know some of you might not like bananas, but just imagine with me that you love bananas. And, uh, and you need, you're thinking that sugar kick, that little energy pick me up, but I'm going to feel great, and then it's going to get me right through to my meal. Bananas are fantastic. And then your friend pulls out one of these guys and says, here you go. I, I think you might be disappointed. And if you're not disappointed, you should be. Because uh, as, as we know, it looks a bit like a banana, it's sort of a similar shape. It's, the colour's right, the smell isn't. <laughs> um, but this is, uh, well, a foam banana is what we call these. And uh, you may have seen these before. There's no nutrients, there's no vitamins, there's no fibre. In fact, it's just a teeth-melting amount of sugar in there and whatever else goes in there to make it squishy and foamy. You kind of don't want to ask, really. Uh, and bananas, why bananas? I think that the way we talk about love and the understanding that our culture has about love is this, is foam bananas. I think the problem that we have, the problem that we have in our society, in our culture, the Western culture I'm talking about mainly, I actually think other cultures don't have this problem in the same way. Uh, some cultures are, are, are more family-oriented. They're more about your relationship with others. But in our Western society, we've lost something of the importance, the flavor, the realness, the, the good things about love that, uh, well, it's a, and it's a tragedy. You see, we've traded the rich, powerful, biblical understanding of love for cheap, synthetic copy that doesn't do us much good. We've been taught, many of us, for generations, that love is a romantic feeling and that commitment, perseverance, loyalty, these things are actually dangerous. Actually, our society today would say that these things could be harmful for us to be committed, to be uh, what we would call committed, uh, or persevere, or serving others in love. That's detrimental. That's bad for us. I think our society's given up real bananas for foam ones. The reason for this, 
So let's just dig down a little bit into why. Just one layer down. The reason for that is because in the West, our society is individualistic. The individual is key. The most important thing to me in my life is me and my life. That's how I define myself and who I am relating to others to some extent. Like I said, other cultures, the family unit can be at the center of what it means to be alive, what it means to be human. It could be about how I relate with my mum, my dad, my brothers and my sisters. But for the most part in the West, what it means to be human means to know yourself and to be true to yourself. It's the Disney, it's the Disney mantra. And don't get me wrong, I love Disney films. I watch them all the time. I'm a big Disney person. But we've got to be critical of the things that we watch and the things that we take in. We've got to look at things that our society tells us with a critical eye and be aware of, well, what does this mean then? What's the logical conclusion? If the only way to be happy is to be true to myself, then we can do that at the detriment against or working against our relationships with others. And that's the problem because being true to ourself means how you feel. And then how you feel becomes the way that you uh, judge if you're being successful. Are, are you living for your feelings? Are you, does it feel good to be that way? Then pursue it. That's what we are told in our culture. That's the way that we live our life. That's what every Disney film is really kind of about. The world we live in, the conversations we have, the films we watch, the news we read, they're all telling us that being true to myself means following my feelings. The problem is, when we follow our feelings in everything, we become trapped by them. They become the way we live our life. We live by our feelings. We live because of our feelings. We live through our feelings. And the situation we have now is that love has become just a feeling that we live by. We've, we've defined love as a feeling. That's why we use phrases like falling in love. Like it just happened to me. I was walking along, doing my own thing, and then poof, I fell in love. Or um, it was love at first sight. It's how we talk about love. And the problem with this is that love becomes the feelings, the emotions that we experience, and then it's not love when we don't feel those feelings, emotions. That's, that's not love. Does that make sense? But that's, that's this. That's what this is. Because feelings, of course feelings are real, and they're important, and we, we have them and we should celebrate them. The Bible is not against emotional feeling at all. Just read a psalm. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, actually, we, we need to be able to look at our feelings and celebrate our feelings. We've got a woman in this story who experiences some immense emotions and expresses them vividly. We should celebrate that. We should see it. We should be people that are in touch with our emotions. I'm not saying we're like a, like a black, blank wall or that we're stoic or that we're kind of like cold and I don't feel anything. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is we don't live by them. We're not ruled by them. They're not how we define our life. I'm being true to me and today I feel like this, so I'm going to go that way. That's not what the Bible uh, teaches us to live like and it doesn't teach us that's what love is either. The story we're looking at today, the story of Ruth is 
a love story. Everyone kind of thinks that about Ruth. It's a love story between Ruth and Boaz. But it, and it is, that's there, but it's really a love story in lots of ways. And this morning, the love story is between Naomi and Ruth. The love is between Naomi and Orpah and Ruth. It's between a mother and her daughters-in-law. They're not even related by blood. I don't know what you, if you have a mother-in-law, what your relationship is like with that person, but that's the relationship that we're looking at today. And it is a love unlike the love that we see very often in our media today. It is a love of great strength, of great perseverance, and of giving up everything for the sake of the other person. It's a love, and I'm going to talk a bit more about this later, it's a love that has death at the center. And that's what I believe the Bible tells us, is that real love actually kind of has death at the center. I'll unpack that a little bit more as we go through. Let's, let's read chapter 1, but from verse 6. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to the story of Ruth, it's uh, quite early on. And we're going to read from chapter 1, verse 6. Great. Actually, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return. This is Naomi, by the way. She is Naomi. Uh, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with uh, uh, where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in, your, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people should be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Amazing. Let me just pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that in this rich story, Lord, there is a, a picture of love. There is a picture of determination and commitment. Lord, that you yourself 
have shown to us. Lord, I thank you as we sang this morning, your steadfast love endures forever. Lord, I pray would you speak to us and teach us this morning. Lord, that we'd hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, there's actually a few words in the Bible for love, and uh, the, one of the more profound and it, perhaps important ones is the word hesed, or I think it's pronounced chesed, uh, but for the benefit of Jacob, I'll just say hesed. Um, hesed, and it's a rich and powerful word. It's actually the word used in verse 8, when Naomi says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. It's may the Lord deal with you with chesed, or Hesed. We actually have a, a young boy in our in our midst called Hesed. If you, it's the same word. So now you know exactly what their what his name means. It means love, but it's not any type of love. In fact, when um, a word in the Bible is translated, and you can read in all of your different translations like differences, it's often a good sign that it's a tricky word to translate. So Hesed comes across. Uh, as compassion, as steadfast love, as loyal love, as commitment. In the old King James, it's mercy. And it's because this is a word that doesn't have an analogy in English. It, do, it doesn't simply mean love. It means much more than that. And in fact, in, in every language it, it, other than Hebrew, it, it's hard to get across the meaning of this rich word. It combines loyalty, commitment, compassion, and kindness, and demonstration of love in action. Uh, uh, one writer says, I think this is great, more dramatically, he says, Hesed love is one-way love. It's uh, love without seatbelts. It's uh, fully aware of the cost, but committed nonetheless. It's stubborn love. And today's passage is all about this kind of stubborn love. So I forgot to mention before, actually, uh, quite importantly, we talk about love. I think often our society, because we're individuals and we're individuals who have feelings and we live by our feelings, and one of the strongest feelings that we associate with love is romantic love. And so when we use the word love, we instantly think of the rom-com and romance and that kind of thing. But that's, that's because of this backwards chain of thinking when actually the love uh, that we see in the Bible is a commitment to those who we love and we love people differently depending on our relationship with them. So I love my children with a real love differently to how I love my wife, to how I love my colleagues and my friends and the stranger on the street. There's, it's the same love but it, it shows itself differently. And that's powerful, it's important for us, because if we have the Hollywood version of love, we almost feel squeamish to use that word outside of a romantic relationship. And it leaves people who aren't in a romantic relationship wondering how they can express love and wondering if they are receiving love from anywhere else. When actually what the Bible tells us is that we all experience love and we all express love, it just looks different depending on the relationship. So here we have love in action, love on show through Naomi and Ruth. We can see it, we can learn from it, and we can apply it to all our relationships. How that looks will depend on what the relationship is. And I think I can leave it to us to see what would be appropriate in those relationships. So Naomi's love. We're going to look at Naomi's love, then Ruth's love, and we're going to finish with God's love. Naomi's love. To recap, Naomi has lost everything. She lived in Bethlehem, which is the, the house of bread, 
And ironically, there was a famine. There was no bread. So her and her husband, Elimelech, God is king, decide to go away from the place where God said be. And they say, no, 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 we're going to go this way. And they move. They travel east out of, uh, out of Israel, out of Judah. They travel east, which is never a good sign in the Bible. When someone travels east, it's east into Exodus. It's east out of Eden. It's east into some place they shouldn't be going. That's a motif. It's a theme that you see. They decide they're going to go their own way. Instead of staying where they were told to be, under the covenant with God, under the relationship that they'd set out with God, instead of being there and remaining, trusting, or praying even, they don't do any of that. They say, uh, let's go to Moab. There's probably food there. And so they travel all the way. And Moab isn't just any old place. It's really the last place they should be going. It represented a, a nation, a people, who had in every possible circumstance and every way had been against God's plans. They'd blocked the, God's people from going into the land promised to them. they dealt badly with them. They'd conquered parts of Jerusalem and Israel and had uh, been oppressive to them. This was a bad nation for them to go to, and yet that's where they go. And in Moab, Naomi loses her husband and her two sons. So basically, the only way that she had any security in a patriarchal world would be through her husband and through her sons, and she loses all of that. So she is in a bad way, in a bad place. Amazingly, she has these two daughters-in-law. They're all that she has left. They're really the only hope that she could possibly have, actually, because maybe they could remarry. But she, she's heard that God has visited her people. She's heard that God has come out. She's heard that there's food now in Bethlehem. And for whatever reason, a lot's left unsaid. We don't know. Maybe this was Elimelech as the, the, the husband, the family, the patriarch. Maybe he brought his family to Moab and she was never for it. And so now, 10 years later, the story tells us she, she hears these rumors that the possibility that, there's, that the famine is lifted, the possibility that there's food, and she thinks, I've got nothing left. I'll go. And the story seems to suggest that they set out together as a family, Naomi and her two daughters. But somewhere along the way, she realizes that the situation for these daughters, the situation for Orpah and for Ruth, is going to be very similar to her situation when she was in Moab, the foreigner. Except she realizes, possibly because she knows where she's going, that it might be worse. She knows there's no husband for you in Moab, in, uh, in Bethlehem. The only husband that she could possibly think of having for these daughters would be a child out of her own lineage because she would raise them to do that. But that's, as she explains, would they wait that long? No, that would be crazy. And if they did wait that long, the, perhaps the window for children would be out. So she's logically thinking as she goes along, hang on a second, if I bring these two daughters with me, it's, it's hopelessness for them. They will be in the same situation I am now. It's all that she has left, and in her love for them, she says, go. She's acting out of a love. And what's important here, I think, as I reflect on it and notice, she is suffering and has suffered and is living in suffering so immense, so great, so painful, even in that, she's thinking of them. 
Even in that moment, she's thinking, how can I love these two ladies who have joined themselves to me through marriage? It's bitter for me, it's bitter for them. How can I, how can I, how can I give these guys, how can I give them some hope for their future? And that is profound love. They're the only people who could help her and care for her. Everything in her body would say, I need these two women to help me. All that she has left. And for love's sake, because of hesed love, I could not hold up the banana maybe, maybe diminishes the point. For hesed love's sake, she is willing to push away the two people dearest to her. She's a woman broken by life, suffered bitterly, yet she shows great love in the middle of personal tragedy. She's determined to love these daughters, even if it means making her suffering worse. That wouldn't make a good Disney movie. But Naomi is outloved by Ruth. Orpah sees the logic. She sees it, and that's fine. She, she recognizes, yeah, my life's going to be worse off there. I'm better off back with my people and back with my gods, as she as, as Naomi puts it. But Ruth, Ruth says no. Ruth clings to Naomi where Orpah kisses her and leaves. See, Naomi isn't wrong. Things will be better for them if they stay. But Ruth isn't put off and displays this second act of hesed, love. In fact, um, as Naomi tries to appeal to Ruth, saying for her to follow after Orpah, there's actually a sense, because of the way that Naomi says it, she says, go after Orpah, go to her people and to her gods. It's almost a suggestion that Naomi already knows that Ruth's allegiance, her, her heart is already for, for, for Naomi's God, for Yahweh, for, for the God of the Israelites. She's already making that um, that transformation, that transition, that, that, that conversion, in fact, to, to Yahweh, to God. And she says this amazing verses. In fact, it's a poem, is what she says, uh, in verses 16 and 17. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you will go, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me, and more also, if anything but death part me from you. So there's three parts to this poem, and they build on one another. The first part, she says, I will go where you go. I will abide, I will rest where you rest. What she's saying here is that in all of life, in all of our walking, in all of our moving, in all of our journeying, when we wake up in the morning and we start, leave the house and we go out, I'm going to be with you. And when we come back and we sit down, or if we stop along the way, or we stay in someone's house and we go to sleep, I'm going to be with you. In other words, all of the time. That's what that means. All of the time, I'm going to be with you. I'm giving up my time to be with you. Second thing she says, your people shall be my people, your God shall be my God. This is unheard of, unthinkable in, the, in that context, in that culture. This is about identity. First she talks about Naomi's people, the Israelites. 
And we've already talked a bit about how the Moabites and the Israelites didn't mix. That's a well-understood barrier between nations. It's a well-understood aggression. You know, it's like uh, it's like Liverpool and Manchester. If you know your football, we're like you know you you don't go to Manchester kind of thing. But actually, serious. It's what it, it was unimaginable, the idea that she could give up being a Moabite and become an Israelite is unthinkable. People didn't talk like that. That language wasn't understood in that context, the way of thinking. But her God, your God will be my God, is even stronger, starker, the idea, because in that context... You had a god of a people group, and uh, so Moabite had Chemosh, and then uh, you know the Canaanites had um, Baals and Asherah, and they had all these different gods, and they were the gods of a people group. And so wherever you went, you still had your god that was your god kind of thing. But the Israelites were unique in that they said, uh, actually, our god is the god of gods. Our god is the god over all. Our god is actually the one true god, and all these other guys, it's not real. It's like, it's something else. It's counterfeit. They're not god. Our God is God, and that was a unique claim in the culture. So for, but the idea of leaving one God to join another was, again, alien. So for Ruth to say this is huge. I'll spend all my time with you. I give up my time to be with you. I give up my identity, who I am, what makes me me. I'm going to give that up in order to be with you. And the third line where you die, I will die. Where you're buried, I'll be buried. Almost sounds a bit like overkill. It's like it doesn't, it doesn't seem as powerful. But actually, it transforms our understanding of the first two claims. Because what she's saying there is, presumably, Naomi is older. So, Naomi, when you die, I'm going to stay committed to the first two things I've said. Because you could imagine, when, when Naomi's dead, Ruth doesn't need to be there anymore. She could go back. She could go back to her old life. She's only committing to Naomi whilst Naomi's alive, but she isn't. She's saying, no, 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 I'm committed to you even past the point of your life. I will remain in the place that you are, and I will remain identifying with the people who you are, and I will remain identifying as belonging to your God or the God She's giving up everything that she has, her friends, family that she may have had in Moab, any hope or prospect for her own future and starting her own family, she's giving that up. She's essentially assigning herself to a, to a lonely existence in a foreign land where she's possibly going to face abuse and uh, like maltreatment, mistreatment, and then she's going to die out of love. It's super bleak. And then behind this last line, this last stanza, may God do to me, is an oath. It's an oath language. It's a promise language. It's a, it's a covenantal language. We see it through the Old Testament. It's a, a way of saying, uh, it's, it's a way of signing a contract, actually. It's what they would do to sign the contract. So she's sealing it. It's like sealing this. The closest thing we have is marriage vows, I guess. Signing the paper. That's what this is. She's saying, I seal it down. I write it down. This is my oath. You can't change it. You can't break it. 
amazing demonstration and display of committed love, of stubborn love, of I'm going to love you no matter what the circumstances, no matter how I feel, irrespective of anything else, I'm in it for the long haul, love. Where does Ruth and Naomi, for that matter, get this idea of love? She gets it from God, because this is God's love. This is God's love. Hesed in the Bible is used about 250 times. It's actually quite a lot for a word, um, so the scholars say. Uh, 75% of the time, it's used to describe God. It's, it's the main way of describing God's love. Hesed love, committed love. I'm giving up everything for you kind of love. We sang it this morning. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His hesed love endures forever. Psalm 136. In fact, if you read that psalm, that line, his love endures forever, is the repeating refrain over and over and over again. It's the way that God speaks about himself, so much so it's at the core of his identity. In Exodus 34, he's, uh, God is having this conversation with Moses, and Moses is like, but God, like, we kind of know who you are, but we don't really know who you are. Can you reveal yourself to us, God? Can you reveal yourself to me so I can display you, so I can talk about you to other people, so I can tell them what you're like? And what God says about himself is, uh, in Exodus 34, come up just a second, he says, the Lord, the Lord, God's saying, this is who I am. I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast Love, in hesed, love and faithfulness. This is who God is. It's his character. So where do Naomi and Ruth get it from? Where do we get this idea? How can we aspire to this kind of love in our relationships by being rooted in the God of love? And only by that. By knowing and seeing his love for us, his love that we sang about it this morning. And actually, um, what Verity brought and, and our contributions this morning, I just wanted to shout out because what we heard this morning is that God, despite anything that his people did, we, you know, we're reading in the Old Testament and it's a covenant relationship where he'd said, you be my people and I will be your God. And they kept failing it's a story of failure. As you read the Old Testament, they keep rejecting him. They keep turning to other things. They keep running away. There's that, this story after story of God's people saying, do you know what? I could find something better over here. I don't, I don't feel like loving you today, God. I kind of feel like loving this thing over here. This is where my feelings are going, and I'm going to lead in that way. That's the story of the Bible, and the continued refrain from God is, my steadfast love endures forever. I'm going to chase after you to do you good. That's God's promise to his people. So much so that God shows his love in this, that whilst we were yet sinners, he came and died in the person of Jesus Christ. In the heart of love is death. Shown to us by God willing to die for us on the cross. That is the gospel, the act of God's forgiveness and salvation in Jesus. It's rooted in hesed love. It's rooted in his commitment. 
Because the Old Testament describes, the, the, the Hebrew scriptures describe the story as God is relating with a covenantal people, okay? It is different today. He's relating to a people group, and he says, you be my people, I'll be your God, and I want you to live in this way, and I want you to, 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 to live your life in this way. I want you not to be like the Moabites. I don't want you to be like those guys. I want you to be different. I want you to be set apart. I want the other nations to look at you and go, wow, these guys are amazing. Why is that? And then when they ask that, you say it's because our God is like this, and that's what he wants this relationship to be like. But it was always pointing forward to a time when God's love would break out amongst all of the nations. When God would come and say, I'm doing a new thing. I'm making a new covenant, a new relationship. And this one is still based on his love. His love hasn't changed. But this time, it's open for all who, can trust, who trust in the name of Jesus and trust in him. He's done it all. He's paid the price for sin and for debt the debt of uh, sin, and he's broken death. The chains of death have been broken in Jesus. This is God's love. Just like Naomi and Ruth, and obviously more so, in a greater way, in a greater display of love, God goes way further than duty or what might be expected normally. He deals with the sinful, rebellious nation that he's loved and cared for and rescued and pulled out of Egypt and all these miracles to provide for our land. Despite all of that, he deals with them with grace and mercy, forgiveness and kindness. God willingly giving up his life comes to die for his people, of which we are now, if we believe in Jesus, grafted in. We are adopted in. We are part of that family. We are part of the family of God. Knowing that God loves this way, that this is God's expression of love, that this is how he loves, transforms our understanding of love and gives us the power to love in that way. So I'm going to end. We're going to end. I'd like the band to come up. I'm going to end by just wanting to encourage us in, in two ways. Firstly, in our relationships, we, there's a challenge here it's an extreme challenge, but in our relationships, are we guided by our feelings predominantly, only? Are they what, are they what drive us forward in our decision-making in, in our relationships? Or is it a commitment to love one another despite ourselves? I'm going to hold my hand up and say it's, it's mostly the former for me. And so, so the challenge, our challenge this morning is to say, God, fill me with your love. Show me your love. Allow me to love like you. It's, it's the only way to be transformed by God's love, his power, seeing it displayed for us on the cross. Lord, help me to love like you love. And secondly, if you don't know this love, if you don't know Jesus, if you wouldn't say that you, you believe in, in what he's done, or you're not sure, and you're thinking you're hearing this for perhaps the first time. And my, my encouragement then to you is, this is a God who says, come as you are. I see the, the mistakes and the failures you make. You're, you're human like everyone else. You're going to keep on making them. 
and I don't care. I'm going to keep loving you no matter what. That's what God says to us. I'm going to keep loving you no matter what, despite yourself, irrespective of your behavior, irrespective of your circumstances. Things could be tough right now, and you might be thinking a bit like Naomi does. God's dealing bitterly with me. We will see hope in the rest of the story. We'll see how that pans out, and we'll see her weeping turn to joy. We will see that. But God says, my promise to you is my steadfast love endures forever. Trust in me. Trust in me. Um, we're going to sing we're gonna sing a song, and, and there's a line in there that says, I will build my life. I will, I will build my life on your love. Wait, remind me yeah. of that lyric. Uh, upon your love, it is a firm foundation. Upon your love. Upon his love, we build our lives. We're not doing this in our own strength. And we're not doing it on our own. We're a community. We're, we're together as a community. But we build our life on his love. And that's powerful. And it's life-changing. And it means that we're sustained and we grow and we develop. When you stop living on a diet of our feelings, it's going to get us nowhere. And have a diet of God's love, enduring love.